Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Corporate Accountability and Human Rights, the legacy of Professor David Weisbrot, features Professor Anita Ramasastri as she explores the history of the corporate accountability movement and the singular contributions of Minnesota Law School professor David Weisbrot. Professor Anita Ramasastri is the Henry M. Jackson Professor of Law at the University of Washington School of Law. This event was the keynote lecture for the Minnesota Law's Human Rights Center Day. It was recorded on April 13, 2023. A video replay of the entire event is available on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. What a great way to kick off my formal introduction to uh, Professor Anita Ramasastri, uh, who's both a friend, a colleague, an extraordinary scholar on business and human rights. And it's really fitting that it's she who should be here to open this lecture and, to, and, and part of that is because David Weisbrod shaped the work that she does, and she leads us in a lecture that remembers and honors his work today. Anita is the Henry M. Jackson Professor of Law and Director of Sustainable International Development uh, Graduate Program at the University of Washington School of Law. She's an expert in multiple fields. They include anti-corruption, commercial law, sustainable development, and business and human rights. She's not just a leading academic and pioneer in the field in business and human rights, but she practices at the hard edge of so many of these issues in so many of the hardest contexts in the world. Um, Anita's scholarship has been cited in two Supreme Court decisions focused on issues of corporate accountability for transnational human rights abuses. She's authored numerous expert studies which examine civil and criminal business liability for human rights violations in 16 jurisdictions. More recently, she chaired an expert panel of jurists to develop a corporate crime, corporate crime principles focused on what states should do to investigate and prosecute cases of broader corporate crimes uh, that have significant human rights impacts. And her UN work is quite extraordinary. And when I began my role as Special Rapporteur, Anita was on the Coordination Committee, served as chair of that committee, has led not only in her own mandate, but in leading the system to work more effectively together. Um, she was a member of the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights, um, appointed as Rapporteur by the United uh, UN Human Rights Council in 2016, and she's been its chair. Um, she's also in 2021, been appointed as the special representative on combating impunity, uh, combating cor uh, cor uh, corruption at the OSCE. And um, there are so many publications, uh, uh, editorial uh, responsibilities, uh, so many presidencies, including of the Uniform Law Commission uh, from 2017 to 2019, that I think we would eat into like almost the, uh, a lot of her lecture time if we were to go through it. But I, I just want to acknowledge what an, what an extraordinary scholar she is, her leadership domestically, her leadership internationally, and welcome her with the best Minnesota welcome that we can give her uh, to the university to honor us in this uh, lecture in memory of David Weisbrod. Thank you, Anita. Thanks. Great. 
Well, good afternoon, and it really is a delight to be here. And I have to say, it's a real delight to come from uh, Seattle, where it was still rainy and cold to such warm weather. It was a real treat when I got off the plane and I left my down jacket at home. I didn't, so it's a real Minnesota welcome. Thank you. So, Associate Dean Gross, uh, Professor Neerling, thank you so much for this invitation. Thank you to your colleagues, Amanda Lyons and Abigail Nelson, for this chance to be here. I do have slides because I want to really represent today. My remarks are going to be both personal because what I think I'm going to share with you is the role that David has played in the field that I too have helped shape, which is this field of business and human rights, which is a relatively young field in the field of international law and human rights. So I'll talk about David's pivotal role, but really the legacy he's left. What can we see of his fingerprints and his intellectual architecture? What I'll also do is talk about the importance of social movements at the same time, what it takes for us to build that kind of a community. And we can think about anything. Many of you are probably interested in climate justice and the environmental movement. I'm interested in corporate accountability. And really, it is about the ties that bind and the role of academics, ad advocates, activists, all of us working together. Um, I, I listened to the career panel. It was great to see three different alums working in different areas. Michael, I know from his work in the private sphere. And sometimes we agree and we're on the same page. And other times, I'm saying, no, that's bad corporate policy, right? But we need each other, right? And we need that dialogue. And so I really want to commend uh, the University of Minnesota for just its role in bringing human rights to everybody locally and globally and David's role there. So I'll just begin by saying, in addition to David, who was a great mentor in the early phases of my career, I want to acknowledge a couple of other people who are here. Fanola, I had the great pleasure to work with at the United Nations. And you know we both have had challenging times and difficult mandates. But it was really that having those colleagues that made a difference. But I also want to mention uh, Professor and former Dean Bob Stein, who has been a mentor to me with the Uniform Law Commission and really pioneered in the importance of international law back here at home. So thank you, Bob. And I'm not sure if she's here right now, but Professor Jennifer Green, who the students I'm sure know and love. Uh, there you are, Jenny. So Jenny is, can I just say, Jenny, you're my hero, right? So like I met Jenny when she was a litigator dealing with corporate accountability cases and was so delighted when she came to Minnesota because she is an excellent lawyer and scholar. So again, it's just to say that these ties are just so amazing and why I think we keep doing this work. So as I sort of I wanted to just really, for some of you who might be new to this topic, what do we mean when we use these terms, business and human rights and corporate accountability? Well, as I heard in the earlier panel, you know, these words didn't exist a number of years ago. So we're really going to go back just only about 20 years, 25, 30 years, and we didn't have a vocabulary. We didn't talk about business and human rights. And we didn't even really talk about the other term that's often used by civil society, which is corporate accountability. So I just want to begin by saying, well, why should we care, right? What, what are the issues? Well, business and human rights is sort of shorthand for people who work in the field for this idea that there are corporations in the world, and those corporations work globally, right? They have global supply chains, right, that are bringing us vaccines and pharmaceuticals and food. And they have partners, and they invest overseas. Coca-Cola has you know, its presence, McDonald's everywhere. But they are also connected to human rights abuses, right? And that's the larger issue, is that big companies and small companies are connected to negative human rights impacts. So today, what are those issues in the newspaper? Well, as we rush to electric vehicles, I've got a Prius, right? 
We need cobalt. We need lithium. We need to make electric batteries. But what we're seeing is, of course, where does that come from? It's mined by children in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. What about human rights at home? This article up here on the screen from just a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times is about child labor in the United States, unaccompanied migrants that are now working illegally uh, in places like factories making Cheetos and Fruit of the Loom, cleaning up toxic chemicals and meat processing. So these issues of global supply chains and human rights violations are not just about somewhere far away. They reside here as well. And then we have here indigenous communities, right? They're also being impacted by this race for minerals. So lithium, for example, the scramble for the new white gold, indigenous communities are having their land uh, taken. They are dealing with issues of negative environmental impact. So just to say, what we're seeing is, is that companies have connections to human rights in a positive way sometimes, but often in a negative way. And this is what David and other people started to see in the late 1990s. But I want to step back now. So that's sort of today, just to say, should we care? And we heard from the alumni panel about things like China and Uyghur forced labor. But it's just to say, what responsibility should these companies have when they have those connections to human rights abuses? And we'll talk about what's the challenge there and why should we care. But just to say that the problem of transnational corporations in particular, those that operate across the globe in multiple jurisdictions and have lots of partnerships, runs deep and runs historically back a long time. So just a couple of history slides, because again, so for those of you who are like me, right, I've got the graying hair in the room, we remember some of this stuff. For the younger people, it's like really kind of a walk back in history. But when we talk about the 18th century, and William Dalrymple has written about this in a more recent book about the anarchy, the British East India Company in India was actually one of the beginning examples of sort of how companies use repression and human rights abuses as part of economic conquest, right? So this is not new, but it's only new in the sense that we've actually started to try to do something about it in terms of global solutions. Um, and then we have the end of the Second World War. So I'm not going to bore you and go through with these slides, but just to just put them up there as cues to say that we started to wake up to these issues of corporate power, which had existed since the time of colonialism, really after World War II. So after World War II, we have decolonization. Right? We have the rise of the new international order with the United Nations. So we have this beginning movement of human rights. But what we have is countries from the global south saying, well, the governments left, but the transnational companies didn't, right? So the transnational companies, the IBMs, the United Fruits, the others, they were able to go along with their colonial government partners into Latin America, into Africa, into, in, into Asia. They were able to go with favorable concessions, right? They were given the licenses to mine, to operate, to farm. They were the ones supplying us and still supply us with the bananas that we eat and the coffee. But they were able to stay and take advantage of the benefits of the economic investments they got because they were given to them by colonial powers. So in the 1950s and the 1960s, we started to see something that still exists today, the new international economic order and the belief among governments of the global south that the terms of trade and investment are inevitably unfair, right? That if you were a country, let's say in Latin America, which used the term banana republics, 
you were <clears throat> never advanced when you were colonized in terms of technology, right? So you lack sort of advanced market base. But what you have to trade are things that are going to be cheap, people aren't going to want lots of, and you're going to have to trade and sell bananas and sugar and commodities in exchange for the stuff that you really want, the computers, the cars, the mechanized farming equipment. And so it's always going to be a trap because you can't trade as many bananas for those things, right? So there is just there's this underlying critique in business and human rights, which doesn't relate to human rights, but relates to economic development and the relationship between the global north and the global south. But it's also the root of where we get the sort of beginning of the critique of transnational power. It's in the 50s and the 60s. And at the UN, there was a big debate over the power of transnational corporations. There was actually a center for transnational corporations. It's now called the UN uh, Conference on Trade and Development. But it was really focusing on the unfairness of international investment in trade. And so, States in the global south became concerned about transnational corporations and their power. And so that still exists today. I teach economic development. I teach sustainable development. And so there's still those debates. But it shifted when we get to the 80s. And that's just what I want to show you in terms of a history lesson, which is that in the 1980s, we start to see of shift and a focus, not just on the economic power of transnational corporations, but on the human rights impact of their activities. And so what I show you here is, those of you, again, who are older, as like me, will remember Union Carbide in Bhopal, India, right? That the explosion there, which led to the death of many, and then really a lack of access to effective remedy, was a tort case, and Union Carbide, for its basically negligence, was sued in Texas court. And that's where Union Carbide was headquartered. But Union Carbide said, nope, the case belongs back in India. Law students and lawyers form non-convenience, right? It went right back to India, where there was a settlement. But to this day, there's additional uh, uh, attempts to gain greater access to justice because the victims got very little redress. So Bhopal, as sort of a major transnational tort, I want to say was sort of the beginning of the human rights movement waking up and saying, wait a minute, when there's a transnational company and there are victims in another jurisdiction who can't get access to remedy, what are we going to do about that? And that's when we start to see lawyers like Professor Green kind of spring into action, right? So what is the theme that I'm going to talk about for just the next few minutes? It's the so-called governance gap that this is the problem that the business and human rights movement or the corporate accountability movement, if you grew up in my day, talk about, which is this idea that home state corporations, like transnational corporations, are headquartered, their parent companies are in countries like the United States, in Canada, in Europe. But the harm that they are connected to through subsidiaries or through supply chains is often in countries where the government, the host government, is unable or unwilling, so I'm going to use those terms, unable or unwilling, to provide access to remedy. The unable may be because of weak rule of law, court systems that may be corrupt, or just an inability because of the pressure of international inward investment to actually enforce strong laws, to protect workers, to protect child laborers, et cetera. So that that's the unable category. And the unwilling are, are governments that are actively engaged in repression and partner with multinational companies and joint ventures and other kinds of activities 
but certainly themselves are not going to provide remedy to their citizens or to people who are harmed in their jurisdiction because why would they? So I'll just put, to give you an example, Myanmar as an example of that, right? So there's a military dictatorship, and so the government needs transnational corporations to make money but isn't gonna provide a court system for victims if there is any harm. So that's the governance gap that we're talking about, right? And so businesses can be direct perpetrators of human rights abuses, they can be connected to them, or they can be the partner of a government like a Myanmar government that may be the one that's the active repressor, but the company is still reaping an economic benefit of that harm. So the challenge of this, right? So this is what David, this is what I, this is what Professor Green and others have dedicated much of their life to, is really closing that governance gap. It's saying if we are true to commitments to international human rights, people anywhere in the world should have access to effective remedy. And when we talk about these transnational harms, which can be civil, torts, or can sometimes be criminal in international crimes, right? If there's a conflict going on, for example, what are we gonna do about it? And so this is what we are all focused on. So the question is, of course, states under international human rights law are the duty bearers. They're the ones responsible for dealing with this and they should police their companies and provide adequate laws and good courts. But that's what we just talked about, the governance gap, that many states are unable or unwilling to do that. But yet we have transnational corporations headquartered in jurisdictions with stronger rule of law that should be doing something about it, but they too have not really been that active in sort of extraterritorial regulation for different reasons. There's the role of non-state actors. We've dealt with international armed groups, for example. They have certain obligations under international law. Why not companies? It's just an open question that we continue to debate. Who has jurisdiction over a transnational corporation? There is a challenge with the extraterritorial actions and then there's just the inherent power politically of transnational corporations. And I'll just give you an example of that, which is that the tobacco treaty, because tobacco has a lot of power, had to be negotiated to prohibit tobacco companies from actually being able to participate in the treaty negotiations for fear again of the way in which they would sort of influence and the outcomes for public health of a treaty that deals with how tobacco can be marketed and sold. Uh, as a matter of public health. So where did the corporate accountability or business and human rights movement begin? So we wake up with Union Carbide, and then 1990s, we wake up again. So how many of you are law students in the room? Okay. So for you law students, I'm just gonna ask the two uh, women here, for example, can you imagine a world without the internet? No, right? Other students over here, other students? You wanna raise your hands? Could you imagine a world without the internet? You could, like maybe when you go like on a family vacation and they say to you, put away your phone, right? Is that what you remember, right? But, 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 and so for the others in the room who are like, who else remembers the world without the internet, right? Did we, did we survive? We did survive, right? <laughs> we survived, but I just want to say that, and I don't know if any of you, do you remember like we would get our news, obviously from the newspaper, right? The print, do you remember like Time Magazine? It would come every week or Newsweek and, in the, and sometimes that's where you'd find out about a major crisis, right? Or on Sunday night, I would watch 60 Minutes with, uh, with my parents, right? And that's how I would learn about the world. Well, I wanna say that one of the things the internet has done for human rights is that it made everything visible. 
So business and human rights, I want to say, grew up in the 1990s because suddenly the internet made it possible for us to see tragedy when it was happening. So finally, we saw pictures of kids making soccer balls for Nike in Pakistan. We saw pictures of, of sweatshops in Indonesia and Malaysia. We saw these things. And once you see them, you can't ignore them. There was Kathy Lee Gifford with child labor. She cried on TV about dresses at Walmart, right? So we saw all of this, right? We also had the opening of borders, the World Trade Organization and others. This was the sort of heyday of sort of liberalization. So the idea of the role of companies became more debated. And we had pioneering human rights litigation in the United States. So for those of you who've taken Professor Green's class, what you may remember is that there was a use of something called the Alien Tort Statute in the US. I'm not going to get into the weeds, but to say that it was the some pioneering litigation where they said, let's bring cases against transnational corporations for violating international human rights right here in the United States. Okay? So they opened the door and they raised the issues at home. So let me just walk through just the 1990s, because this is when David got started with these issues. So we have here, these are just cartoons from that time, apparel sector sweatshop scandals in the 1990s. We have Nike and Gap. We have a new term that's coined in the 1990s called corporate complicity, that scholars started talking not only about companies as investors, but as accomplices, right? And for the criminal lawyers in the room, being an accomplice means that you are a partner in a criminal enterprise or right, with somebody else. So corporations were accused of being complicit in the human rights abuses of governments overseas. We have blood diamonds. Okay? Does anyone remember that? This was, again, conflict commodities. We still have them today, right? Conflict minerals. But we began to see commodities thanks to the pioneering work of NGOs. right? And you know that when Leonardo DiCaprio makes a movie, Right, if you're an NGO, that you really have made a made an impact, right? Because you know it's like NGO did the work, but Leonardo DiCaprio made the movie. But what you'll see here, for example, is that this was an NGO campaign from the '90s, Blood Diamonds. Right, for every hand taken in marriage, a hand is taken. Right, because this in the in the civil war in Sierra Leone, amputation was used as a way to intimidate uh, people. But the main thing is to say that the Blood Diamonds fueled the conflict. Right, this is just another slide. We had the litigation against multinational corporations for transnational harms. There were three big cases. And, and Jenny, which were the cases that you litigated? Unicow and Shell. Those are the two slides I had. I was trying to remember. So we had cases relating to the Ogoni oil region and the extrajudicial killing of environmental activists with a connection to Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, litigation in the US that's taken a life that continues. We had a case against Unicow. Uh, which was about, again, a company focusing on oil and gas in Myanmar that was accused of being a partner of, of the Myanmar regime then. There's a new one, right? Uh, and, and basically benefiting from forced labor of the civilians in Burma to like clear roads and, to, and, and forests and other things. So we have the WTO anti-globalization protests in Seattle. Again, there's a movie for the younger generation because you weren't there. I was, but there was also this starting to critique, again, back to the trade and investment. There was the legacy of World War II, and this is where I came in, okay, that some of you may, again, remember that during the Second World War, but actually both in Japan and in the Far East tribunals and in the US, I'm sorry, not in the US, in Europe, uh, there were prosecutions of industrialists, Japanese and German industrialists, for their, their in, com, 
uh, involvement in war crimes, and most notably forced labor, right, that they actually employed and forced uh, victims uh, during the war to work in their factories. And so on the right there is a, you know, 24 uh, managers of one of the German conglomerates were tried in, at Nuremberg, and then there's a book uh, there just talking about the last deposit. And the reason I have those two images there is that in the 1990s, while Professor Green was litigating her cases against modern transnationals, there were similar litigation going on. Class action attorneys were bringing lawsuits against European and Japanese multinationals who had used and benefited from forced labor during the Second World War, but had never paid restitution to the victims, some of whom were still alive, others whose families were seeking that. And those cases were settled. I, my first article as an academic, and I remember David Weisbrot said, that's interesting, as did my dean, was called Secrets and Lies, Swiss Banks and International Human Rights. Now remember, this wasn't a field yet. So my dean was like, really, Ramasastri? And I'm like, I'm a banking lawyer. The banks are complicit. Like, I went and ran a tribunal in Switzerland to deal with the dormant accounts from the Second World War. But it's just to say that it's hard to ignore, right, this connection, right? When you go back to the Second World War, you can show the close connection between industry, uh, government, conflict and grave human rights abuses. So just to say that in the 90s, we were reminded of that because of lawsuits against these companies. And so that was the world we were living in in the 90s. The internet woke us up and, we could, we, and all of these things were happening, challenging corporate power, but doing it in relation to human rights, right? The World War II cases, Professor Green's cases, uh, the, the WTO, there was all of this focus on the human rights impacts of the transnational corporation. So scholars started to pivot at this time. So we have up here, I'm just going to put up here just for, again, those of you who are like, you got to talk about scholarship, Ramasastri. But this is to say, these are some of the early scholars that started to have us think about human rights. We have Peter McClinsky, who's writing a book that's not great bedtime reading, right? It's sort of dense but it's comprehensive on the law of multinational enterprises. We have Upendra Bakshi, who is at Warwick, an Indian scholar who wrote about Bhopal and what he calls market fundamentalisms. We have a colleague of mine who was on the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights, Michael Addo, writing a book on human rights standards and the responsibility of transnational corporations. We have Menno Kamingo, 2000, an edited volume, Liability of Multinational Corporations. And then we have David Petrasek, who was a human rights advocate at Amnesty. He became a professor at Ottawa he wrote a seminal report called Beyond Volunteerism. So the pivot here is, remember the governance gap. Companies weren't required to do anything more than comply with local law. So if you were a multinational, whatever the law was in Myanmar, whatever the law is in North Korea, wherever the law is, wherever you are, is all you had to do. You didn't have to respect the law of your home country when you were overseas, and you didn't have to respect international human rights law. So local law was the bar, and it was low. So these scholars started to say, can we lift up corporations and either make them directly responsible, duty bearers, or can we at least get them to respect human rights wherever they go? That was the debate that these books and these things were saying. And to go beyond volunteerism. Companies were like, they always have had human rights pledges. They have codes of conduct, right? Citizens, good citizen pledges and CSR but they didn't have binding standards. That was the debate, and that was the one that they were in. And that's where Professor David Weisbrot entered the scene, right? And he really, through his work, 
helped us make that shift. Because scholars can write books, and they can write articles, and we can have great intellectual debates in our law review articles that a few people may read. And then we go to conferences and we debate more. And we still do that. But how are we patients to behave? How are you going to tame a transnational? So I was at a conference in the late 90s uh, in Maastricht in the Netherlands where David started musing, because he was on the UN subcommission on the protection and promotion of human rights. Maybe we could all of the different human rights treaties and try to spell out how they apply to companies, right? Even if it's not required, even if there's not a treaty that makes them do that, at least let's spell it out. Right? Let's say that international labor standards apply to companies. Let's look at things like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Let's focus on how we can do this. So he drafted something called the Draft Norms on the Responsibilities of Transnational Corporations and Other Business Enterprises. Now, I would say that one thing that I would say if I had sort of I was a, a junior scholar, so I wasn't going to advise a senior scholar. But having now been in the UN system as an expert, I would say we needed a different name, right? The draft norms on the response, it just, for a corporate audience, didn't really roll off the tongue. But what it did was just a masterstroke, is it looked at all of the human rights treaties that we have out there, codes of conduct, regional treaties from the inter-American system, from Europe, from Africa. And it said, let's spell out for the business community what it would look like to respect human rights. And, I'm just, and so he tabled this with the idea that they would become sort of like soft law first, so not binding, but trying to change governments' regulation of companies, so to wake up governments to say, you can pass laws that, that raise the bar and make companies do more about their supply chains. You can do that, right? You can. So governments wake up, companies wake up, and it's no longer enough. Look, you're getting sued by Professor Green, and you're doing right. You gotta actually respect human rights, right? It's not enough to do business in a repressive country and, and just say, well, we're complying with local law if local law is non-existent or just incompatible. So he created the draft norms, and I'm just gonna just hear some of the preamble, right? Realizing the transnational corporations are also obligated to respect general responsibilities and norms. So he's just talking about kind of a general principle. Taking note of global trends about the influence of transnational corporations and other business enterprises. So he takes note. And I didn't excerpt it here, but he did have one sentence in there about how these norms would eventually become generally recognized. So there were a couple of sentences buried in this UN document that when the business community found out about it, so Michael, I'm going to turn to you just because you, you know companies. So let's go back in time, right? So if lawyers were advising their clients and they sort of saw these norms, what do you think frightened them? Yeah, they're like, we don't, I mean, if you imagine a corporate lawyer, they're going to be like, we don't know all these treaties that are being cited here. But it was also this idea that through adoption and use, the norms would become customary international law. So for our international law scholars, there was this sort of aspiration embedded in the document that really made certain governments and certain companies say, ooh, this is dangerous. So what does the UN do, Professor Nealon, when they want to get, get rid of something? Yeah, they do that. But before they do that, <laughs> they get somebody nicer. Did they, but did they kill it? Yeah, well, they kill it by multiple soft-killing things. The soft-killing is they table it, right? They, they stop to kill it. Yeah, they stop to kill it. So they never took a vote on the draft norms. The draft norms actually quite, got quite a long way. 
you know, we were into 2003, there was lots of discussion and excitement, but then they got tabled, right? So that's what I mean, right? The norms drifted out. So my students will often come to class and be like, where are the norms? And I said, the norm, it wasn't like there was a vote, there was no norm election, right? The norms just were tabled. And what we had instead, I should just say here, what was the main ra rationale? These are just the things that David really focused on, right? Host states unwilling or unable to address systemic human rights abuses. Host states cannot stand up to powerful transnationals. Host states actively in repression. Corporate structures, corporate laws, still a barrier to access to remedy for victims because parents and subsidiary companies are separate legal entities. So you can't really sue the parent easily, as Professor Green knows from her years of litigating, right? Is it easy, Professor Green? Right, to, from, if, you're, if the harm happened where the subsidiary is located, suing the parent is really not easy. And then there are just the cha challenges, the cost, evidence gathering, I mean, just the whole notion of transnational human rights litigation. So the norms were an attempt to say, instead of like dealing with this through lawsuits, let's deal with this through respect for human rights at the front end and prevention. So the norms were tabled, and, and, they, and that's just because they were just a little bit before the UN's time in terms of where we were. So David has finger on the pulse. He found the problem. He created a solution that was really not meant to be binding, but sounded a little bit more binding than perhaps the UN and companies were ready for. And then in came someone who gets a lot of the credit these days, who's John Ruggie. John Ruggie was a professor at Harvard in the, in, in the School of Government, and he created a framework called the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which is what we talk a lot about today, and a framework called Protect, Respect, and Remedy. Now, I'm not going to go into that framework, because this lecture is not about John Ruggie. It's about David Weisbrot, which is to say that it was a soft law instrument itself as well, which meant that, but it did the same thing that David did, which is that basically Professor Weisbrot and then Professor Ruggie said, companies, you need to, as part of what we're going to call your social license to operate, you need to benchmark your conduct around the world to a few key international human rights treaties, the covenants, the universal declaration, so that again, if you go to Saudi Arabia and you're dealing with gender issues, find a way to address gender rights. If you are dealing with children's issues and child labor in the cocoa sector, you need to address that. You need to try to allow workers to organize. You need to, and you can't use local law as an excuse anymore. So both David and John really raised the bar and opened the dialogue for companies and human rights. It may not seem to the students in this room like game changing, although students, does it seem game changing to you? Yes, I hope so, right? Yeah. But, but you, you've, you've moved into a world of internet, you've got internet, and you have business and human rights, right? There's a journal, there's classes, right? But, but this didn't exist, right? I didn't have a class in business and human rights in law school. So I'm just gonna conclude by saying, so I just want everyone to reflect that for one professor to have the clarity of vision, to take this and to bring it to the UN and to try to create a framework for addressing these transnational governance gaps, these union carbides, is tremendous. So you have to say it happened here. And that is the legacy. So I met David in the 1990s. Uh, in addition to him saying that's interesting when I talked about my scholarship was that he empowered me to, to, to embark on the journey. And remember that slide where I listed the scholars? They were all men, just by the way, right? A challenge in the academy, right? Back 20 years ago, kind of the way it was. 
But I was one of the first people of the younger generation to write and one of the first women to write in the field, thanks to David, right? So he helped open up the space for new people. So what David did with the norms was singular, and I really want to say that. And then I just want to say, what is the legacy of the draft norms, right? Where, where do we go standing on the shoulders of David? Well, we keep going, right? That that's one of the things, right? I showed you those slides in the beginning to say we have a long way to go, right? We haven't solved this problem. But what do we have? Well, we heard earlier from one of the alumni about the US. So the US is never going to be kind of the same as Europe, right? Just not, right? We're different. But we have our own binding laws that are attempting to deal with company supply chains. So now, if companies are importing goods into the United States, if they get a complaint from a civil society group that that commodity or those goods were made with forced labor, Customs and Border Protection can just seize those goods at the port. The company loses them unless they can prove, which they can't, that those tomatoes, that cotton, that polymer, for, right, whatever it is, is, is not made with forced labor. So again, we don't have lots of resources, but to understand that the US government can just seize the goods of a company right, and, uh, and take it away, they lose them. If they are made with forced labor and there's a sort of government order on that, that's big. What does that force companies to do? Clean up their supply chain. So there's a law that deals with Uyghur forced labor, but there's a much broader one. So on the web, on my slides here, I just have a, a map and just a web from the website, which just shows where there have been uh, orders issued for different kinds of commodities from the Congo, Malawi, Turkmenistan, India, Malaysia, and you go on, Mexico. Okay. So that's the United States. And the United States, again, because it's hard to legislate in a fractured Congress, right? So we have instead what the government calls multi-stakeholder initiatives. We basically have taken on issues like private security. You may remember Blackwater, right, from uh, uh, Iraq. We have the US, the UK, and Switzerland have a, started an industry code of conduct association for private and military security companies. It's called ICOCA. But what's amazing about that is if you want to contract with the US government for private security, right? Because remember, there's the army, but who guards our embassies? Private security contractors, right? That's what uh, Blackwater was doing in Iraq. You, they have to comply with the human rights standards of this organization. So the US government is saying, if you want our government contracts, the UK is saying that, then you have to respect human rights. So the US is embedding kind of David's vision in different things. Then we have the UN. So at the UN, my role as a rapporteur, like Professor Neoyland, was uh, as a member of something called the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights. But after the norms were tabled, civil society didn't go to sleep. They're like, we want binding rules. We don't want to wait. We want binding rules for transnational companies. So led by Ecuador, there's been a treaty process going on at the UN Human Rights Council. You can see a picture here, rights for people, rules for transnational corporations. Here's another picture, right, uh, from a newspaper saying global south states and civil society keep up the momentum, right? So there's a treaty process going on. Now the treaty process for a long time, people have said, well, the US hasn't participated and you know, you're, the EU doesn't have a common position. But as I'm going to show you in the next couple slides, 
Now that Europe is beginning to regulate business and human rights, they're actually legislating, they're kind of waking up and being like, well, we should be influencing this treaty process. So what a difference a year can make. So the treaty process, we'll see. But, but it's there, and it's it, thanks to David's legacy that civil society is even trying to do this. And then, just the last couple of slides, nationally and re regionally, we have national human rights legislation on modern slavery and on forced labor and other things. I'm not going to use this fancy term, human rights due diligence. I'm just going to say that there are laws in Europe now, in France, in Germany, that require companies, including American companies, to actually police their supply chains meaning they have to identify and find human rights abuses and provide some way to prevent and remedy them. Right? So just to say there are national laws, right? So back to Michael talking before, there's a whole host of things you can do as a corporate lawyer now in this field. The European Union is debating and is going to have in the next year or so a full directive. So the whole EU is now going to regulate business and human rights issues in global supply chains, right? So the US is doing its own thing, because it does, but the EU is now moving. Litigation continues. The US, thanks to the Supreme Court in the United States, has narrowed the ability, again, I'm sorry to keep, you're my hero, Professor Green, to keep talking, to, 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 to sue transnational corporations in the US. The door has really narrowed. But it's opening in other parts of the world. So this is a, a headline from Canada where a lawsuit against a mining company for forced labor in Eritrea in the mining sector not only led to a great judgment in the Supreme Court, but to a settlement as well. And there's litigation going on in different parts of Europe. So you shut one door, new doors open, thanks to David's work. And then finally, we have the idea of corporate accountability. Now, David may have, and we may have moved to business and human rights, but business and human rights, you know, sometimes people will write to me and say, does that mean businesses have human rights? You know, because they hear business and human rights, and I'm like, that's not really the field, because you know, maybe we should have called it human rights and business. But the term that existed that David also used was corporate accountability. And we still see that, and I know there's one person who's worked with this organization, in, in uh, one of your alumni, the International Corporate Accountability Roundtable, right? So civil society hasn't given up on the reason we're doing this, right? So I just want everyone to leave to say, why did David do this? It's not to just talk about it. It's to provide access to effective remedy for those harmed by companies and corporate power. And so I just want us to end by saying the world with, with the norms instead of the guiding principles. What would that look like? And I just want to say that the corporate accountability strand is still alive and that David's vision is now aligning with the guiding principles, that we now have a world of more binding rules, right? So the world is shifting. We have a new generation urging us to look again at hard law and treaties, and we have a new focus on what I call writing the economy. We have a whole group of scholars and activists that are saying, if you don't change corporate law, it doesn't matter if you tell a company to respect human rights, because unless you deal with the issue of shareholders and investment in this, then we're never going to have the world that we want. So just to say that all of these issues are kind of the next set. So I'm going to stop there and just say, for me, David changed my life. And I hope that for many of you, he changed yours. Um, but we're all living with his legacy. So thank you.
This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.